So I'm reminded through the prayers of our men every week that uh, the bread is for faithfulness in life and the, the cup for the forgiveness of sins. And I think that's probably something we should add to what we do with the table is that we proclaim that together uh, as we take each of the, uh, the elements for faithfulness of life and forgiveness of sins because that is, of course, what is afforded uh, to us through the table. It is more than just a, uh, a remembrance. We know that there is actually power uh, in those things. Uh, one other thing I want to mention before we get started. <clears throat> what we sang today is something that Jacob and Monique wrote. And I think it's pretty obvious that uh, the Lord wants you two to continue to keep doing that. And you need to see that as uh, your... Uh, your obligation to the Lord, and I think it's a good obligation. <laughs> Not to put any pressure on you, but <laughs> you need to do that because <clears throat> that's a that's a definite uh, ministry, uh, a very uh, a good ministry for the body of Christ. And you clearly, God has given you the gift to be able to do that. So be faithful with it. Okay, I want to encourage you with that. We're going to do something a little. Uh, Different than uh, what you have there in the notes, so if you would please just turn over your notes to the back side that should be blank. <laughs> so, as we do every week, we proclaim uh, what is the sound gospel message. And by sound, we mean correct or according to what the Bible teaches which means it is the only gospel message or the only good news that uh, that saves. And so it's important that we not only understand what that is, hence the reason that we do it every week, we, we repeat that so that it becomes a part of our memory. But it's also important that we're able to support that from the text of Scripture. And I know that I've done that in the past. I've shown you the verses that uh, support what it is that uh, that we proclaim together every week. Uh, but I feel that we need to do that right now. And uh, so we're going to take this morning just to remind ourselves of the verses that support uh, those three parts of the sound gospel message. So here's what I want you to do on that uh, back side. I want you to write uh, number one. And I want you to write after number one, the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ. So that's the first piece, the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ. And for a title, Simone, I know that this is not very nice of me to do this, or James, whoever's back there, but let's just call this a review of the sound gospel message. A review of the sound gospel message. That'll be the title. And again, your first point should just say the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ. Then about halfway down the page, after you've written that, the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ, I want you to write number two. If we submit to him as Lord before Savior we submit to him as Lord before Savior. 
if we submit to him as Lord before Savior. And uh, you should be able to recall this uh, from memory because, again, this is what we proclaim. The sound gospel is the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ if we submit to him as Lord before Savior. And third and finally, then down at the... uh, Closer to the bottom there, leave a little room for notes. Write number three and then these words. In the relationship of covenant through his church. 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 Okay. So, now that you have that written down, we'll be ready to start after we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Let's do that now. Father, thank you that you've given us a day to not only come again into your presence, to worship you, uh, to be blessed by you. We know that there is a, a blessing to be gained when we do this. You promise that to us in your word. Uh, but Father, also to uh, to be equipped to take what it is that we have learned here and to use it to reach others and to advance your kingdom and to bring glory to your name. Father, as we uh, endeavor to do that now with uh, the part most essential to the advancement of your kingdom, your gospel, I pray that you'd give us attentive hearts and listening ears and uh, that you would again use it all In the name of your Savior, our our Savior and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's let's go through this. And I want you to be thinking about uh, if you were to do this with somebody else, you were sharing the gospel with them, uh, if these are the verses you would come up with, or, or maybe the better way to think about it is, is what verses would you come up as it relates to uh, these three areas. So maybe just uh, take a second to glance down at those uh, those three parts and uh, ask yourself the question: uh, Could you uh, could you fill that in with biblical text? Could you fill that in? Could you uh, explain it, but then also support it uh, with scripture? Could you do that? Okay. Well. If you can't, that's obviously not good, right? You need to be able to do that. And if there's uh, if there's anything that you should be able to support and uh, that you should put to memory, it is uh, the gospel, right? That's, uh, again, the thing most important or essential. And so uh, what we will review here today is uh, something that you should then be uh, putting uh, to memory. It should be in a sense, uh, second nature to you to be able to pull up uh, at least the verses that uh, I will give to you uh, today. And by the way, I didn't do this until just a a couple of minutes ago. We were singing uh, one of the songs, and it was after uh, something that uh, Bryant said. He actually prayed and said the saying that, you know, uh, 
he was praying for me, and he said, instead of saying, you know, with whatever the word is that he gives us today, he said the gospel. N- not that I'm Pentecostal, and I thought that he had the word from the Lord, and I changed. But, but, but for whatever reason, I said, well, maybe that's what we're going to talk about today, because I, I really started thinking about <clears throat> uh, us—again, proclaiming the, this uh, sound gospel together every Sunday, but again, asking the question, can we support it? We, as God's people, we, we proclaim it every week. Hopefully, it's something that you know by memory. Uh, but do you know God's word as support by memory? That's what we need to do right now is give you, or I need to give you those verses again. Uh, and I say again because we've covered this before, okay? Um, and so uh, I would uh, strongly encourage you again to make sure uh, that you you put a plan in place after you leave here today, as we talked about as part of the punch list. Uh, if you don't plan, you plan to fail. And uh, that's a big reason people fail to change is because uh, they don't put an actual plan in place. You need to have a plan in place if you're going to accomplish anything in this life. Okay, So please uh, do that. Uh, plan and make a plan to uh, get this stuff memorized. So let's deal with the first, the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ. And we want to make this as simple as possible. Uh, we don't want uh, too much as far as uh, Scripture, and this is probably the area where uh, we can uh, afford to have the least. Uh, the good news of abundant life, it is the good news, and we know that word gospel uh, just means that. That can be a term that is foreign to people, especially people outside of the church. They say, what do you mean by gospel? Well, that term literally just means good news. And so what is the gospel with specific good news? Um, It's good news uh, that Jesus in Christ, we can have abundant life. And where we get this idea of abundant life from is John chapter 10, verse 10, John 10, 10. Okay. So uh, like I said, uh, if there's one uh, particular piece of this where we can afford to have uh, the least or just one verse, Uh, This is probably it, uh, because this is uh, how Jesus uh, speaks about his own ministry and what he came to do in John 10.10, the second part of John 10.10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that word that is used there for abundance really is now speaking to uh, something beyond just this life. So I came that they might have life now. And uh, what he means by life is not that just uh, you're breathing, right, but uh, quality of life, that, that they might be blessed in this life. I came to see that that would take place, but more than that, uh, that they would have it abundantly, that it would, uh, that it would extend, this blessing of life would extend beyond just this life, right? And that's the, right, the important piece, especially if that life is much longer than this life. But really, that's the, the, uh, the onus to want to follow Christ is the realization that this life is uh, very short uh, in comparison to uh, where we will end up uh, in eternity based on what we do with this life now. And uh, eternity, meaning that uh, there is no end to that life. 
And so just putting the two in the, 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 the scales there, uh, to, to give up my life, as we're going to see is what Christ requires, uh, to do that, and by that, uh, that just means to follow him and be obedient to everything that he says, to do that, to dedicate or to live my life for him, that's a bargain in comparison to what I'm going to get, which is this uh, life abundantly uh, in the next life. I'm going to have blessing not only now, I came uh, that they may have life now. Blessing in this life now. When you follow God and do things God's way, that's often what happens. And if that's not what happens, it's not because uh, God doesn't know what he's doing in uh, telling you what to do. He is the creator of this world. It operates according to the way that he built it. And uh, his word uh, tells us or gives us the, the keys for navigating through it in a way that will, uh, that will bless us or do good to us. Uh, it does that, but not only, it guarantees that even when we do face hardship, it is for our good. Deuteronomy 8.2 says just that. God says uh, that he took his people through the wilderness and he purposed that they would hunger during that time, uh, but he did it to test them that he might do good to them in the end. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that's God's promise to us even under the new covenant. That's Romans 8.28, right? That God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him. Notice the condition there, those who love him. And we're going to see uh, what that means. This is not some emotional thing where it's like, well, I, 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 I love God, so I'm in that group. No, it's love according to his definition or his terms, not yours. But again, for those who love God, everything works as a blessing. Even the bad things are a blessing. Uh, persecution, sickness, you name it. This is where uh, Paul goes after Romans 8.28 into nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? We have that in Christ. And really what we have again is that promise from Deuteronomy 8.2 that I promise to do you good in the end. And that relates ultimately even to death, right? There is a day when we will die. And on that day, there is good that is done to us in that. We're, uh, we're punching our ticket, in a sense, here, so that we can take the train somewhere else, somewhere uh, better, somewhere better, right? To heaven. And so, uh, abundant life now. All the wisdom that we gain from God's word and learning how to navigate through this world, plus anything that does happen bad to us, persecution, sickness, whatever, is all purpose or designed by God to do us good in the end if we respond to it in the right way. Again, I'd say that's a pretty good deal. Right? And so abundant life, and this is, this is how we should be uh, explaining it to other people. Hey, here's the good news that I want to share with you. Who is uh, resistive to good news? That's really good news. And so there's the first piece, the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ, which means it's not apart from Jesus Christ. It's part of the deal, right? It's in Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes uh, we Christians make the mistake of, of communicating God's wisdom uh, to people uh, who are not Christians. 
And, and the problem with that is, is that God uh, says in his word that he's not working for the non-Christian's good. Which means even though uh, they can prosper by the wisdom and, and, and uh, uh, people often do, and you look at the principles that are guiding the successful people in this uh, world, uh, the principles that are guiding them oftentimes are found in the pages of scripture. But at the end of the day, God is not working for those people. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says that God uh, is uh, stuffing the bellies of the wicked with treasure. That he might push them further in the direction of darkness away from him. Meaning it is a sign of judgment. And so even when they do prosper, God is not for them. And even at times is using it against them. And so it's good news in Jesus Christ. It's only good in that way. Which means it's not something that seems good, but at the end uh, may actually be a curse. When it's in Christ Jesus, it's always good. As James says in James 1, he is the father, or when we come into relationship with Christ, uh, we gain God as our father, and through that he becomes the father of good gifts to us. And as a matter of fact, James is exclusive about that. He is only the father of good gifts, or he is the father of only good gifts. Good gifts to us. So there's number one, John 10.10. 10. Should be really easy, right? And you can turn to that passage with people, and by the way, that's something you want to do. You want them to see that this isn't your opinion, right? We submit to Christ. It's not uh, what we want the gospel to be. It's what he says it is. And so you want to do that. The power comes from God's word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is what we want upon people as we're sharing the gospel with them. We want it to come from God's word. And so we want it anytime we can, and especially uh, with devices today where you can have a Bible on that device, we want to use that. So they can see it coming from God's word rather than uh, from us or our opinions. The second piece, if we submit to him as Lord before Savior, uh, notice there, if. That establishes a condition, does it not? If. It's only the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ if we submit to him as Lord before Savior, which means the antithesis of that is also true. If we don't submit to him as Lord before Savior, uh, then our life will not be good news. As a matter of fact, it becomes just the opposite. For the person who uh, uh, comes into covenant relationship with Christ or even calls themselves a Christian who takes that name upon themselves and then uh, does not proceed to live for him, who does not proceed to submit or obey him, uh, then they bring uh, even uh, a more serious curse upon themselves in this life and in the life to come. And so uh, this is incredibly important. And this is the piece where now uh, we really emphasize that as it relates to what was said in the first piece, right? Hey, this is good news. This is all about abundant life, but understand that means submitting to him. To who? To Jesus Christ. What does it mean again to submit? It means to obey. And you're to do that uh, as Lord before Savior. That's the little uh, term I co coined years ago to uh, really describe what the Bible teaches. 
Often today we uh, hear uh, people talking about uh, the fact that they have Jesus, or really not the fact, but they think uh, they have Jesus as their Savior. Jesus is my Savior. Well, what's clear from stem to stern in the Bible is that Jesus will be nobody's Savior who does not first agree to submit to Him as Lord. And as I taught the kids years ago uh, to, uh, to uh, respond when I would say, what does it mean to have Jesus as Lord? They would say, that means He's the boss. And that is what that old term refers to, Lord. It means boss or master. And when we come to Christ, we come as doulos. He's the boss, we're the doulos. And doulos is that uh, Greek term that means slave. And a slave, at least in Roman or ancient times, meant that you had no rights. You had given yourself as property to another. They owned you. It was what they said. It was how they defined you. That, how, uh, that determined, rather, how you lived. You were, again, the doulos, but you were a happy doulos. You were a happy slave. You willingly gave yourself to this master, in this case, the master being uh, Jesus. And this is the deal that Jesus makes. I will give you abundant life, both now and in eternity, if that's the case, and only if that's the case. If you come to me as do loss, if you sell, you know, to put it in terms of uh, how we hear it uh, a lot of times in relation to uh, the devil, people will say, well, you sold your soul to the devil. Well, the, the opposite is, is, is true here. You need to sell your soul to Jesus. Your whole life becomes His. And that's the only, again, deal that Jesus will make if he is to be your Savior. And Savior is that term that really goes back to then this idea of abundant life. If he's to save you from this world and your life in this world, a life that is being corrupted by this world and by your, your very flesh, this is the reason that Paul in Romans 7 says, who will free me from this body of death? And uh, I don't know whether it's true or not, but some commentators believe that uh, what Paul is referring to uh, there in Romans 7 where he says that and he responds by saying, thanks be to Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, he's the one that delivers me or saves me from this body of death, his body of death, which he knew was corrupting his soul. Uh, some commentators believe that Paul's reference there is actually an allusion uh, to the city of Tarsus where he grew up. And in that particular city, supposedly, if a person murdered somebody, uh, they would take the body of the victim. Now, I say supposedly because I, I have a hard time believing that, that the, uh, the family members would allow for this, but uh, supposedly they would take the body of the victim and they would chain it to the, to the murderer. And they would make him drag the body of his victim until uh, that rotting flesh infected his own. And so this idea of who will free me from that, right? From this body, this is the body that's corrupting me. It's not just the world around me uh, that's going to hell in a handbag. It's this body that constantly is tempting me in the direction of sin. And he says, thanks be uh, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because through him and through baptism, we are freed from that. That's what Romans 6 says. In baptism, we died with him. And there's this power that is now given to us to overcome those things. 
What was once president now becomes resident. No longer the chief. Still there, still something that we have to battle with, but now we have a power to overcome it in a way that we did not before. We now have the helper, the Holy Spirit. But again, going back to our point here, uh, it's only if we submit to him in that way that he becomes our savior, that he promises us freedom from sin and corruption in this life, and he promises us the next life. So again, the question is, what verses would you use to support that? Lord before Savior, which again means this, hey, unless you're willing to submit to him, and you do submit to him, it's not just about what you're uh, intending to do, but unless you do that, he won't be your Savior. And remember, we talked about that as part of the punch list items uh, a couple of weeks ago. Good intentions do not count. Lots of people have good intentions. I wanted to serve Christ. I wanted to do what he said. I have a feeling in my heart for Christ. I feel warm and fuzzy about Christ. That doesn't matter to Christ. You either submit to him or you don't. And if you don't, he doesn't care about your good intentions. We saw that from Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, you know, it's the parable of the two sons. And uh, the, the one son, his father goes to and says, um, uh, go into the field and work today. And that son says, I will, but he does not go. The second son says, uh, I won't go, but changes his mind and goes. And Jesus says, which of the two sons did his father's will? And the answer, of course, is the one who at first said his intentions were not good. I'm not going to go. But in the end, he's the one that went. Whereas the other son said, I will, but didn't. And the point that Jesus is making is the point that I'm making right now, or attempting to make, and that is the fact that you need to submit. It's not just something I intend to do, but it's something that I do. Hence the reason Jesus can say, we will be judged according to our deeds. And we're going to see that here in just a second as uh, one of the verses, at least I have on my list. So again, as you're thinking about this, what are the verses you would put down? Well, here's uh, where I would uh, start. Here's where I would start, and it's with the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. And uh, we know this is uh, Jesus speaking here uh, because he is... Uh, uh, he is uh, the, 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 uh, the covenant-making God of the Bible. And the only way anybody's ever saved, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a second, under that third and final piece, but the only way anybody is saved is by coming into covenant relationship or contract relationship uh, with Jesus. And Jesus is the one making such contracts or covenant throughout the Bible. And so the, this is Jesus here speaking uh, these words, or this is who Moses is speaking about when he says in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God meaning he's the only God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Isn't that great? Those are comforting words. This is a, a passage that also speaks to God responding to in kind. God says, if, if, if you will... Uh, you'll love me and you'll keep my commandments, you'll be faithful to me, uh, then I will equally love you. 
and keep the covenant promises that I've made to you. And that's how a covenant works, right? On one side, you have a certain promises, and those promises are in exchange for the promises that are made on the other side by the other person or persons. And so in this case, uh, our promise, our vow is to obey his command, to be his people. And God says, okay, Jesus says, okay, you're going to be my people by what? Obeying me, by being faithful to everything that I've said, to, uh, to making me Lord before Savior. If you want me to deliver you, if you want me to make good on my part of the deal, if you want me to deliver you, if you want me to give you a blessed life now, if you want to get to heaven later, then, then this is what you need to do. And if you do that, here's my promise to you. I am a faithful God who keeps my covenant promises and steadfast love to you. I'll do that. That's why I love this verse. Because you see both parts here. God is saying, know therefore, uh, know this about me. Jesus is saying that. No, I will keep that. I will keep my promises to you and my steadfast love to you to make sure that everything in your life works for your good, that I will do you good in the end. But if, again, it's a condition, uh, if, and it doesn't have the if here, but to the who types of people, which is where this is really picked up, this idea of the condition, with those who love me and keep my commandments to a thousand generations. Notice verse 10, here you have uh, the other side of it. For those who maybe start out that way and have good intentions, but who do not keep his commandments, who do not love him, notice, and repays to their face those who hate him, by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And again, in the context, what is meant by hate there has nothing to do with how you feel. Please understand that. This isn't, I'm cool with Jesus. I just don't obey him. It's, it's, uh, it's you hate him because you refuse to keep his commandments. I will repay him to his face. Uh, by that way, that idea of repay implies a previous covenant or relationship. Repay, right? There's, there's some kind of a, a reciprocal action that's taking place here which requires a prior relationship or agreement. I'm repaying you for what you did to me. Well, they're doing it uh, because of, or, or the reason that God feels this way is because of the covenant relationship that person is in with him. And so if you fail on your end, then he will not keep his promises to you. So again, uh, if, if we submit to him as Lord uh, before Savior, and we know from places like Deuteronomy 28.2, it means faithfulness to all of his commandments, everything that he has said. That's what it means to have him as Lord. All that he has said. So when it says here, uh, keep, uh, who keeps my commandments, the one who does that, what commandments? All of his commandments. Hence the reason over and over in the Old Testament, it's be careful to do all that I have said. All. And uh, that takes us then uh, into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. You know the text, or you should know the text, and really uh, the text that I'm uh, going to should all be familiar to you. The question is, could you turn to them on your own? 
Would you remember these texts to turn to if you were sharing the gospel with somebody else? Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 and following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So here uh, they've got the Lord piece down. And uh, for this person, I would assume based on uh, what we're told, is this person thinks because they called Jesus Lord, that makes him Lord. And that's not the case, at least based on what Jesus says here. Not everyone who says that to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, intentions. Maybe how you feel. It doesn't matter. That's why it's so empty when you see, and it seems like I always see this on like the back of some truck going down Sheridan. You know, Jesus is Lord. It's got like the blackout, you know, windows, and, and it's Jesus is Lord. It's like, what exactly are you trying to communicate to me? What does that mean to, to say Jesus? I mean, Jesus here is saying, you can say that all day long and it doesn't matter. I don't care. That's not what it means to submit to me. And again, that's the piece uh, that you need to make sure you don't discount in your gospel presentation. It's if we submit to him as Lord, not if we call him Lord. Notice, Jesus says, they're calling him Lord. Not everyone who does that, however, is going to get into heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, what is it based on? What we do. The one who does the will of my Father. And this is, it's just that simple. You're sitting down with someone and you say, you tell me what you think that means. Does that mean we need to obey? Does that mean people who didn't obey, who were unfaithful, are going to get in heaven? People who claim to be Christians, who said a prayer, who accepted Jesus in their heart. Notice, do you see anything there? By the way, you're not going to find anywhere in Scripture that even speaks to that. But in this, in this text here, they probably had accepted Jesus in their heart. They're calling Him Lord. But it gets them nowhere, or at least for these people, because what's clear based on what Jesus is saying here in relation to these people is that they didn't do the will of his Father who is in heaven. He continues, verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and, and I love that he puts this in here. Uh, because it tells us that what Jesus is talking about in verse 21 when he says, uh, the only one who gets in is the one who does the will of my Father, uh, it tells us that that, that again is uh, comprehensive. These people clearly were doing certain things for the Lord. And he doesn't deny that. His response, if you notice in the next verse... And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. His response does not in any way intimate that what they had chosen to do, uh, he was not for or that he was against. And sometimes uh, people take it that way. And I don't think you can do that because to do that, you're arguing from silence. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, what you thought you were doing in my name, the mighty works you thought you were doing in my name, you weren't. He doesn't even go there. The issue is, is that at the end of the day, even though they did do some things, they didn't do all of the things. 
They were instead characterized as workers of, notice again, lawlessness. What does it mean to be lawless? It means you don't keep the law. Are we talking about perfection here? No, the Bible never speaks to the issue of perfection as something that is required of us. Is that the goal? Yes, absolutely, all of it, yes. But what does God require? Faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like? Your life is characterized by obedience. When there's disobedience, that is a surprise both to you and to others. That's the difference. In this case, Jesus is saying these people's lives, even though there were moments of obedience, prophesying in his name, which means he was using these people. I mean, think about that. These people at the time when prophecy was still in play, uh, these people are being used in the church. They're, 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 they're exercising demons. Did we not cast out uh, demons in your name and do many mighty works? Again, Jesus doesn't say uh, everything you, you thought you were doing or w- w- what it looked like you were doing was false, it wasn't real. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. And so what's to be assumed is that they were doing these things. The problem is, is that their lives were characterized, characterized by disobedience, lawlessness. Which means that no one is going to stand before Jesus and be like, like these people. Wait a minute, Lord, I did do do things for you. That happens in the church, you know. People will leave a church when they have a particular sin that gets dealt with, right? And uh, that sin gets dealt with and then they get offended and they say, I I can't believe that that's how you're, you're treating me. After all I've done, You're not going to play that card with Jesus. How dare you? I I sat in that chair every single Sunday. I had perfect attendance. I I gave my tithe the way I was supposed to. You know, and you run down a list. I can tell you right now, you either get in the end zone, you score the points, or you don't. Right? doesn't matter you ran 99 yards of the ball. You get tackled at the goal line, right? No touchdown. And again, that's what it is. You follow Jesus, you do everything he says, and that's what's to be characteristic of your life. That's what it means to get in the end zone, right? Not picking and choosing and saying, well, as long as I do some stuff for him, I'll be okay. No. You sell out. You become the slave to him. Again, that's what it means to submit to him as Lord before Savior. That means doing the things that you don't want to do per se at the beginning. And why I say at the beginning is because if you truly love God according to 1 John 5, you find his commandments not burdensome. And there's definitely going to be things in your life, especially as a new Christian, but really for the, for the, the entirety of your life, there's never going to be a point where you're going to just be Okay, change is going to be the constant in your life if you're a Christian because that's what that term, I've told you this many times before, mathetes, disciple, that's what that term means. Learner. And God's going to continue over time and in his time to reveal things in your life. And he expects you to change those things as he reveals those things. 
And at any point that you stop and you say, now I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to ignore what you say. Whatever it is, that's at the point that you become like these people here. And you begin to justify in your mind, uh, didn't I do this and I did this and that? In your mind, you say to yourself, that, that, that should be good enough. And again, no cigar. Jesus says, you either are completely mine, you submit to me. That's what it means to submit to me. Or you will hear on that day, away from me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So again, another text that supports this. And Jesus goes on even to give us uh, uh, an example of this in uh, two individuals who uh, build a house. One who builds on the, uh, the rock, the other that builds on the sand. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. L- listen again what he says there. He doesn't just hear these words of mine. This is uh, what comes to mind here is, is what James says in James 1. He says, don't just be a, a hearer of the word, but be a doer. Because a hearer is like a man who looks at his image in the mirror. And then when he goes away, he immediately forgets what it looks like. Which means the time spent looking at himself is worthless because he can't even remember what he looks like. And Jesus says, that's not the man who builds his house on the rock. And the rock, of, of course, is a place of stability or strength, a place of authority. And Jesus says, that's the person who uh, not only hears these words of mine, but he does them. And notice Jesus doesn't call him a fool. He says, that's the wise man. Why? Because when life comes in, the rain falls, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why does it not fall? Because it had been founded on the rock. What is the rock made out of? A man who now, because of his actions, is a wise man. A man who not only hears Jesus' words, but does them. And then in contrast to that, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Notice again, it's what you do. This man, in this case, he doesn't. He, he hears it. He probably gives lip service to it. This is like uh, the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 that Jesus later talks about. And you have the various different soils. And two of those, the, the second and third soil, uh, they hear and they receive the word with joy. Joy until they're pressed to actually have to do it. Right? everybody's great with the hype, right? This is the, this is the problem, and hopefully I can come back from this little tangent I'm going on now here, but, but putting the plan in place that I talked about just a little bit ago, we, we, you know, emotions really uh, serve two functions. Uh, your feelings. Your feelings uh, are, are a means of, of motivation, and, and your feelings are also a means of temporary reminder. Uh, or, or recall, temporary recall. So you have motivation and you have uh, temporary recall. And really, actually, temporary is what defines both of them. It's temporary. Which means you've got to use that motivation, that temporary motivation and that, that, that temporary recall of what you need to do uh, to, to put a plan in place. Otherwise, you'll, you'll, you'll never do it, right? Well, the same works, uh, and this is for practical things, whether you're starting a new diet or a gym routine or whatever it is. Uh, once the feelings go away because you didn't put anything in place and you didn't commit yourself to it, and the only way to commit to anything, by the way, is to be obsessed. You have to be obsessed, which means you, you approach it from the standpoint of if I don't do this, I'm going to die. 
It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how small it is. There's the secret. You make the plan and you obsess over it. And the same is true as it relates to the moral realm. The people who go in and they hear it, and uh, probably this guy here, because it says he heard it, uh, he doesn't reject it. He's not like the first soil, which immediately, as soon as he hears it, he rejects it. Uh, but this guy is like the second and third soil. He hears it, and he receives it with joy. Uh, but what happens? No plan is put in place, and there's no obsession over making sure that the plan is carried out. For those of you who do this over and over with all kinds of things that you try to change in your life, this is Monday or Tuesday, right? You wake up and the feeling's gone and, well, we'll just take a break today, right? And so this is this guy because uh, now the, the, the pain of life comes in, the persecution or, or, or the worries of life as he talks about in Matthew 13. And, and all of a sudden, I, I don't want to do it. I heard it. I have a warm and fuzzy place for Jesus in my heart. But I don't want to do it. And what does Jesus say about this man? Well, uh, he doesn't call him a, a wise man. Notice, immediately because of this, he's referred to or identified as a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when life comes in, the rain fell, and that's uh, what these things are uh, really meant to uh, symbolize the rain, the weather, the, the, the adverse weather here. Rain and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, the house being the man's life. It fell and great was the fall of it. And because the context of all of this is eternity, what's Jesus talking about then? He's talking about this person going to hell instead of heaven. They received it hearing, uh, but they never submitted and so again, plugging all of this back into our gospel presentation, what does that mean? Jesus is only good news. The promise of abundant life, both here and later, is only that for you. It's only guaranteed to those who do it, who submit to him. Again, to use Jesus' words, who are willing to cut off hand and gouge out eye to do it. And of course, when Jesus uses uh, those types of phrases, he's not talking about literally because what is uh, being blind or uh, not having any hands do to help you with moral situations. What he's getting at is, is that uh, you are that committed. You're obsessed. And so again, submitting to him as Lord, whatever he says, right? Yes, Lord, boss, master. Matthew 16 Another text uh, that uh, I think of when I think of this idea of Lord before Savior. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, notice the if there, the condition, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know that the cross was a Roman execution device. And so when he says, take up your cross, self-execution, you, and, and what he's getting at here is not physical death, death but 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 but. Uh, emotional or spiritual death. He's talking about, as when I preach through this in a series, he, he's talking about death to self as the one who determines what you do. Most especially your feelings. That's no longer what determines what you do. You've put that to death. And notice again, it is a condition. If anyone would come after me, come after Jesus for what? Well, clearly for salvation. Jesus saying, look, you, you want me to be your savior. This is what you need to do. Deny self. Self says, this is what I want to do. You, your spirit, 
little gingerbread, a gingerbread man inside a big gingerbread man. Little gingerbread man, says big gingerbread man. No! My spirit says no. Why? Because I, the person, the real me, the spirit inside of this hunk, this sack of flesh, the part that's going to be judged on judgment day for what I did or didn't do with my flesh, that part stands up and says, I now belong to Christ. He's my boss. He's my master. I'm the do loss. And so in that way, I've taken up that cross. I've died to myself. And that's how, notice, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, meaning in this world, I want to do what my flesh wants to do. He who would do that will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, I think any thinking human being, if you were to take them to a text like this and and make them reason with the text, Say, tell me what you think that means so that they understand this isn't something that you're oppressively pushing on them. You say, look, isn't this what Jesus says we must do to follow him? If you would come after me, anyone, nobody's got an excuse or an exclusion. If anyone would come after me, this is what's required. If you try to save your life, if you say, I'll do it, but only to this degree because there's certain things, there's certain lines I will not cross. That's you attempting to save a portion of your life. If that's the case, you will lose all of your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And then Jesus continues to reason with us as it relates to uh, what's the better deal. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Jesus is saying, why would you ever choose the former? Why would you choose to save your life in this world? I don't care how good you think you have it. I don't care how precious you think things are. Or maybe even what it's going to cost you to have to give it all up. And in some cases, people have a lot to give up. So much so, and this is really uh, the point, the, 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 the eternal principle, if you will, of the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. It's not just about money. It's about people who have so much that they have to give up that it's almost impossible. And uh, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, even if that's what it is, it's still a better deal to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus and to give all of those things up. And again, just putting it into Jesus' words. What will it profit a man? Even if you gained the whole world. Even if you had the whole world. Imagine you're sitting with somebody and they're like, look, you need to understand something. I know that my life doesn't look like much right now. But I'm actually on a trajectory in about five years or so. I'll be the ruler of the world. You just need to know that. Right? I mean, right now it doesn't look like that, but I am. I'm on my way. Right? And Jesus goes there. Even if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. You gain it in this life for the, for the measly number of years that you may have life here in, in proportion again to or in comparison rather to what you're going to have there. And again, you, 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 this is how you talk with somebody about it. You, you say, you, you tell me. What is the better deal? See, you don't do the work for them. You want them to own this. What do you think? You're sitting with that person. What do you think? Does that make sense to you? That even if I could gain the whole world, does that make sense to you? 
If eternity is really for eternity, does that make a, sen- a, 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 a lick of sense to you? But if I give it all up, it doesn't matter to, to what degree, even if I own the whole world and I give it the whole world, but I get eternity. Jesus says, hey, that's, that's a better deal. What, what, what shall a man give in return for his soul? The value of your soul. You see, you're not going to leave this life and just become worm food. You're, you're going to pay. And uh, that's uh, actually the next point. Notice. And really, this is kind of, kind of the capstone, if you will. Here's why it matters. For the Son of Man is going to come. He's going to come, whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, He's going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Notice, not according to what you said. Not according to how you felt. I accepted Jesus into my heart. Who cares? When I say who cares, the scope of that who includes Jesus. He is coming to repay you according to what you've done. And in this particular context, what you've done as it relates to Him. Did you follow Him as the happy do loss? Did you live for Him your whole life without excuse? Did you live for Him? And here's the wonderful uh, piece, the, 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 the truly amazing grace piece. You could have up to this point lived your life for nothing but you, because there's only two choices, you're living for self or you're living for Jesus. You could have done that and, 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 and you don't got that much left, uh, but, but if you'll turn right now and you'll live the rest of your days for him, he'll, he'll forget about all of that. That's a one-time deal, by the way. Because after that, he don't forget anything, which is why you better be faithful. But that part, all goes away. You can live for Him, you can start right now, and you can live for Christ. But you've got to live for Christ. Again, it's only good news if we submit to Him as Lord before Savior. Because on that day, He will give to us according to what, notice, we have done. So there's point number two. Maybe you had others on the list as it relates to that. But I think I've sufficiently supported the fact that this is what's needed to follow Christ. And why is that important today? Well, because there's a lot of people, the majority of people out there thinking, all you got to do is say some stupid little prayer. That's not true. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Do you need to have faith? Yes, but it's far more than just faith. You need faithfulness. To what? Everything He says. And that's what we call Lord before Savior. You need to submit to Him as Lord before Savior. If that's the case, if you do that, uh, you've got the good news. At least you're on your way. Because the third and final piece is equally as important. It's the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ if we submit to Him as Lord before Savior in the relationship of covenant through His church. Covenant's a, a funny word for most people today. It's not a term that uh, uh, is used. It's similar to that word Lord. We don't, we don't use that, that term Lord today. Uh, so putting that into common vernacular, uh, as I said earlier, covenant, contract. That's a good way to think about it. A contract. And uh, that's uh, what we are to enter into. As part of this uh, submission package, is, uh, we enter into a covenant relationship where we sell ourselves to Jesus. And that's what we do through the waters of baptism. We become His. We saw this, I think it was last week, where I talked about stop robbing temples. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your life 
is now his. And you gave that to him the moment you made covenant with him. A relationship. People say, well, it's not about rules, it's about a relationship. Well, that relationship is a covenant relationship. And you know what the, uh, the, the synonym for covenant is? Rules. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. Now this is somewhat separate from this, but something to keep in mind. We talked about this, I believe, last week. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, where God, in talking about the covenant, Jesus again, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in the covenant that was made at Sinai, says this, or Moses on his behalf says this, and he declared to you, meaning Jesus, or God declared to you his covenant, his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. You're to perform the covenant. What is the covenant? That is the Ten Commandments. So there he makes covenant synonymous with its rules. One and the same. You can't be in covenant and not keeping his rules. The rules are the covenant and the covenant are the rules. That's how you keep the covenant. Right? So in that relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus requires that you come into covenant with him. And the means by which you do that is through his covenant community, otherwise known as the church. Visible bodies on earth. Groups of people, that term ecclesia, which uh, we translate as church, uh, literally means the assembly. It's talking about physical persons who are in this covenant relationship with Jesus. That's the church. And so don't get this idea that I belong to some kind of invisible universal church that the Bible doesn't speak about. It doesn't exist. If you belong to the church and you've come into uh, covenant relationship with Jesus through the church, then you can identify that church or that covenant community or that assembly that you are a part of. And that covenant relationship, and this is another piece that's important to point out, that covenant, because it really helps us to make sense of the obedience piece, that covenant is a marriage covenant. It's a marriage covenant relationship. And that's what all marriages are. We say uh, to people, oh, you're married. Uh, and we don't attach that word covenant, but that's what a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant. Hence the reason at marriages you have vows that are taken by both parties. We just had one here recently, and both sides had certain vows that they took in relation to each other in front of God. And, and, and that's what happens uh, in all marriage covenants. And that's what happens in the Bible whether it's in si at Sinai under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. We take vows to Jesus. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the husband. And according to Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, we are to submit as the wife submits to her husband in all things. The church submits to Christ in all things. So there again is the submission piece. Why we do it? Because that's part of the covenant relationship that we've entered into. And that again is our plaques that are so special and meaningful to us because these are the words that we see all throughout the Bible indicating that marriage covenant relationship. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And both of those really imply uh, the covenant vows that are taken by both parties. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's that steadfast love promises peace. I will be your savior, I will be your provider, I will be the one that pardons you of your sins. I'm the one that takes you to heaven paradise that's Jesus's promise to us that's how he's our God we don't have to worry we have a future 
And our responsibility, our vows, we will be his people. And again, as I said, that means we will obey everything he's commanded. And Exodus 24 talks about that, does it not? Just before they're sprinkled with the blood, which was the sign of that covenant uh, being actually uh, uh, ratified, uh, they, they say what? These words, which shows, right, that they have not received God or Jesus as their Savior because the blood was for the cleansing also. They haven't received it uh, until this was the case, that they too understood Lord before Savior. They say, yes, we will obey all the words of the covenant. And it's only after that that Moses sprinkles them with the blood. But again, a marriage covenant. Where do we see that? Well, Jeremiah 31. The text that is uh, quoted for us twice in the book of Hebrews. Jeremiah 31, where it's pretty explicit that in the future, you have the old covenant, uh, which is predominantly the, the majority of the the majority of the Old Testament uh, is concerned with that particular covenant. There were two before that, or three rather, the Adamic, the Noahic, and the Abrahamic. Uh, but the majority of the uh, Old Testament is the, uh, the Old Covenant. And uh, we're told that there is a new covenant coming, and that's the, the covenant that Jesus uh, institutes by his blood. Hence the reason uh, we read what we do from 1 Corinthians, where Jesus says, going back to passages like Luke 22, where Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right? He makes a new covenant. Where is that coming from? Well, the prophets uh, spoke of this hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus. And how they speak of this covenant is uh, as a marriage covenant. Because again, that's the kinds of covenants that Jesus enters into with his people. In other words, we get married to Jesus. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There he's speaking about uh, the old covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Uh, so, I was their husband. What does that indicate? The kind of covenant it was? It's a marriage covenant. And again, in a marriage, what happens? Ephesians 5 that tells us what it's to look like. A text I mentioned already. Ephesians 5. This would be a great text to have people again turn to. What that relationship looks like. Well, the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's his bride. Revelation 19 talks about that. We're the bride of Christ. And gave himself up for her. He literally died for us that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us, uh, cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing and that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nurses and cherishes it, for it, cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Notice he's giving all this instruction uh, about uh, our physical relationships with our wives as it relates to the husband and how he's to care for his wife. But he says, ultimately, what I'm talking about here is in relation to Christ and the church. And you go to the verses just uh, above that, the ones that I read, and here uh, you have the wife's responsibility, the church's responsibility. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so uh, this is our role in that relationship. Again, it goes right back to the Lord before Savior. We submit to him in all things because that's what a wife does, a loving and faithful wife does to her husband. 
And if we're to receive the blood which has been placed in the church, Acts chapter 20, uh, I believe it's Acts 20, 28. Here's another text, Acts 20, 28, uh, where Paul makes it clear, where is the blood? Uh, pray, uh, pay careful attention uh, to yourselves, Paul says, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which was obtained with his own blood. That blood for cleansing, you want forgiveness, you need the blood of Christ. Where is the blood of Christ? It's in the church. Hence the reason I can't baptize myself or say a prayer and think I'm saved and, 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 and be sitting at home and think I have a relationship with Christ. Hence the reason we need the church because the place to receive the cleansing, to get the blood that is bound up in those symbols, the Lord's table, baptism, the only way to get that is through the church because those sacraments are only sacraments, empowered symbols. They're only that when they take place in the church. You can dunk yourself all you want in your bathtub and it won't do anything. People go out and you get dad's a daddy pastor and he's got his family around and he's like, I'm the pastor. and we're gonna... It's like playing house, you know? Stupid, we're going to do the Lord's table. It's like it's, you're getting nowhere, right? Those things have been given to the church. And so if I want the blood of Christ, if I want to come into that covenant relationship, if I want to have the abundant life, if I want to have the good news, this is what I need to do. I need to go to the church. And the early church, and most of the church for thousands of years understood this until we entered into our time and people just somehow got this crazy amnesia and forgot that. This is why the church has always said there is no salvation outside of the church because the blood of Christ that we need to be saved. I need Jesus to be saved. That resides in his body in his church. Which, isn't that kind of funny? Where does your blood reside? In my body. Well, okay, that's good. Blood is in your body. So where is the body of Christ? The church. And this is made clear, at least clear to me, and this is something that you would need to make clear to them through passages like Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, why you need the church, right? We live in America and everybody thinks they can just do whatever they want. It's all about individualism. Not when you become a Christian, it's not about that, right? Not if you want to be saved, truly saved. Matthew chapter 16, uh, uh, verses uh, 16 and following, Jesus asked his disciples, people had different ideas about who Jesus was, and uh, some were saying he was John the Baptist, resurrected, others Elijah, that's verse 14, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Christ was the, 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 the Greek term for Messiah, this promised uh, Savior, this promised Deliverer who would be the descendant of David. And yet at the same time, uh, he is not just uh, human, fully human, this, this promised Savior to come, this promised King in the line of David, the great King. He is also the Son of the living God, full deity. So Peter makes this proclamation, you're not just a man, and you're not just Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, which was Peter's other name. Uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of this authority, what authority? Peter's confession that he is the Christ, that he is the king. The king comes with authority over his people. He is the anointed one. That's literally what that term Messiah means, the anointed one. 
You come with that authority and uh, you are that person. More so, not just become, because you come with the anointed one authority of Messiah, but you come also as the son of the living God. You are Yahweh in the flesh. And, and Jesus says, what you have confessed, this rock, this rock of authority... With this rock of authority, I will build my church, which means that the authority now resides there. I will use that authority that you speak of, that I have. That mantle of authority will be given to the church, and because of that, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's power. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the it there is the church. The church And as we would expect then, what does he say in verse 19? What does that mean then? This power, this authority, it relates to salvation. Jesus' salvation, his blood. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that makes perfect sense if the church has that kind of authority. And that's the authority that Jesus says he gives to his church. And so again, if I want to come into that covenant relationship, that saving relationship with Jesus, if I want his blood, it resides in the church, Acts 20, 28. And if I want it, I need to go there because it's the church that's been given that kind of authority to declare who it is that's been loosed from their sins by the blood of Jesus. And they are commanded to do that through the sacraments, those things established by Jesus, baptism and the Lord's table. But again, notice, it's the church that has that. And again, if you're talking to somebody about this, this is the part that starts to chafe them, right? Because they don't like that. They go to a particular church because they like the worship there. And now you're telling them the church is far more than that. The church is the place of authority. If it's a legitimate church, it is Christ's church, then it's a place of authority. And they won't like that. And this is where it's most important that you say, you tell me what these verses mean. And don't allow them to say, well, it doesn't mean that, but I don't know what it means. How can you know it doesn't mean that if you don't don't know what it means? Right? John 20, you know the text. And again, I, I don't know what we've come up with. Maybe a dozen verses so far? One, two, three, four, five, six. Like, we're half dozen verses I mean, I've I've talked about some other ones around it there, but we're like at a half dozen verses. Can you memorize a half dozen verses? And not just memorize them, but actually be able to go to them and speak the way that I'm speaking about them. John chapter 20, you know the text again. 21 through 23, which is the follow-up. So Jesus says this before his death in Matthew 16, and he follows up with his disciples after his resurrection, just before his ascension back to heaven, where he's now going to do what he promised to do. I will give you, right? There you have future tense. I will give you the keys. That's Matthew 16. Well, now it's the time to pass that off, because before that, those keys resided with Jesus. But now he's leaving, and so he gives those keys to his church, and he says these words in verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Here's that power. Here's that authority. If someone, by the way, says to you, Well, that's just the receiving of the Holy Spirit as helper. No, Acts 2 talks about that, and that's on the day of Pentecost, which is another 40 days past this day right here. So what's it talking about? Receive the Holy Spirit. This is, again, receiving the Holy Spirit for authority. 
so that they can do the work of binding and loosing that Jesus promised that he would give to his church. How do I know that that's what he's talking about? Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Wow. Again, it's God's word that brings conviction to the heart. You read these verses and you you help that person think through this. And if they're thinking through it and they're honest, they understand exactly what we're saying here. If I want covenant relationship with Jesus, then it only takes place through his church. So all three pieces, we've given support for all three pieces, or I think I've done that here today. You also have, by the way, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which again talks uh, uh, as it relates to... uh, disagreements in the church or sin issues in the church and it's the church's job to identify what those things are and uh, when the church uh, brings judgment down in relation to a particular situation how that that is binding just like we see it under the old covenant in places like Luke chapter 17 or excuse me uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and there are also the issue of declaration of apostasy that permanent binding that takes place when a person doesn't listen to the church all again supporting that the church has that kind of authority You want to be saved, you need to go through the church. And let me again just emphasize, not just any church, and surely not the Roman Catholic Church, or the Evangelical Church, but through Christ Church. Those that understand this, at the very least, and are preaching this kind of a gospel. Because if you don't got the gospel right, then you're not Christ's church or his people. And what is that gospel again? We'll close it this way then. It is the good news of abundant life in Jesus Christ, if we submit to him as Lord before Savior in the relationship of covenant through his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could review this important, essential, essential, essential piece of who we are. We never leave the gospel and it needs to be at the heart of everything that we do. Not just something we say on Sunday, but something that that we know from your word, that we can support, that we can use to be lights with people, to reach them and to advance your kingdom here in this world. Father, I pray if any, any here who don't know you hear these words here today, that it would be used in that way, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would be upon them, and they would, knowing that today, today is the day of salvation, that they would turn now. The good news is for them now, that they would understand it, embrace it, and live for your son. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.